This is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. The earliest artificial intelligence program was written way back in 1951, but outside of science fiction, AI didn't enter the mainstream conversation until decades later. At Fast Company, we've been covering AI technologies for many years, but nothing has compared to the excitement and the fear that OpenAI and their artificial intelligence chatbot, ChatGPT, has caused since it launched this past November. These new AI tools can feel at times like a novelty or at other times like a harbinger of doom. We've seen the panicked headlines that the robots are taking our jobs for years. But how disruptive is AI? How can we use AI to our advantage? And is there anything that us regular humans can do to not only keep our jobs, but hold on to our humanity? I think there's certainly the opportunity that we can spend our time, including our working hours, on stuff that actually requires creativity, requires ingenuity, requires inventiveness. And I think ultimately, just like any other technology has helped us become not just more productive, but also more creative, it's up to us to understand how we can use these tools to improve not just how we work, but how we experience work as well. That's Dr. Tomas Chamaro Premizic, who regular listeners have heard on this show before. He's the chief innovation officer at Manpower, a professor at Harvard and Columbia, and the author of the new book, I, Human, AI, Automation, and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. I asked him why he thinks that technologies like ChatGPT are more incremental than disruptive. So I think what's incremental is the different aspects of AI, large language models, data science. I mean, you know, if you look at it from a geeky or scientific perspective, this isn't a tipping point or a revolution in how AI has advanced. What is remarkable, though, is the level of adoption that this has generated or managed to harness. And I think that's because they have managed to embed this large language model in a very user-friendly and sticky uh, platform with technology that, you know, mostly doesn't seem to crash at some point, especially if we have our listeners who have been avidly looking for answers. And sometimes the demand has outpaced the level of insights that it can provide, but mostly it's working really well, even in the B2C free version. And, you know, I think maybe where I will put it somewhere in between incremental and disruptive is the conversational feel that it has. Those of us who remember seeing the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix and the voice of Scarlett Johansson back in 2013, I think, we thought, okay, this vastly exaggerates the capacity of chatbots. Fast forward simply 10 years, and actually it has her-like features, although unfortunately for some of us it's not Scarlett Johansson, but still it has that conversational feel and you can experience it as human-like besides, you know, the remarkable ability to interpret our questions really well, even if the answers are somewhat off and inaccurate. Yeah, that is a good point, is that it, you know, unlike, you know, previous technologies, this is really user-friendly. And I think that's why there's, you're right, why there's so much kind of excitement about it is like, before it might have seemed complicated and something that somebody else does, and now it's really accessible to everybody. And so much so that people are actually 
finding it pretty easy and intuitive to understand how they can embed it in their work flow or tasks. And I think that's where we can think of, you know, very, if not disruptive, at least uh, kind of exponential or almost ubiquitous impact on how we work. And here, you know, I, I'm adamant really that what's most interesting and fascinating is not its ability to replace humans, but to enhance human productivity and performance. Let's face it, most of us have already used it effectively or are using it for the tasks that were somewhat monotonous, somewhat standardized, and that didn't require the full capacity of our imagination, creativity, and ingenuity. So there's nothing to worry about. I think people who dismiss it and are somewhat paranoid or territorial that it can compete with them are those who should worry because if you're not finding very, very quickly how you can leverage this technology to be more productive, your peers are going to outpace you and outperform you. Yeah, that's true. And then I want to get into kind of the more of like what it can replace and what it can't do and, and, and those sort of aspects of it. But, you know, as you mentioned, AI has been in our lives for a long time and, and used in businesses and technologies for a long time. And on the hiring front, kind of one of the most basic uses of AI that's been around for a while is the applicant tracking systems that scan resumes for keywords. And, you know, that obviously leaves a lot of room for missing the best candidates. But does AI have the benefit of removing a layer of human bias? And like, what are the pros and cons of using AI technologies in hiring? Well, so I would say we split it into two camps, basically increasing sort of uh, efficiencies or removing hiring inefficiencies, which is basically not about improving the accuracy of your inferences and not, you know, so much about finding talent or potential where you were missing out before, but really doing the same, just faster, better, cheaper, wasting less time. But in effect, you end up with the same number and type of profile when you hire them. That's been around for a while. Most organizations, recruitment firms, recruiters have been leveraging technologies to increase the efficiencies and the pace of these tasks. If we've known for some time that recruiters typically spend two or three minutes looking at a resume, why not use resume parsing technologies to match the keywords to the job ads, you know, if it's going to be more efficient and, you know, it's going to actually relieve or free up the recruiter so that they can engage in more human and humane activities, such as talking to candidates about the job, talking to clients about candidates and doing all the stuff that requires empathy, EQ, etc. Now, on the other hand, the debiasing part, I think, is the biggest potential that AI has. Because algorithms, whether machine learning or of other kind of a sort, have the ability to attend to the relevant signals of potential. Let's say that they can attend to signals of curiosity, of empathy, of EQ, of intelligence, of drive, even of expertise, like natural language processing can identify whether when you are speaking, you're mentioning words that increase the probability that you actually know what you're saying, right? They can do this very, very well, more reliably and effectively and consistently than the average human. But what they can also do is ignore whether the candidate is male or female, white or black, young or old, rich or poor, attractive or unattractive. All the things that humans pretend to ignore, but find it very, very hard to ignore because our brains are not 
pre-wired to actually eliminate information about these demographic categories, which from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, we're trying so hard to suppress. Of course, meritocracy should be gender blind and race blind and age blind. But if you have a human in the loop, that becomes impossible. That's a really great aspect of it, right? Is because, and we've done so many, there's been studies and articles about, you know, the bias that happens with a ethnic sounding name or, you know, those sorts of Mm -hmm. clues that humans pick up on in resumes that presumably AI technology wouldn't. Is AI though going to miss, you know, if you're using something like an applicant tracking system that just looks for keywords, are you going to miss that like that unknown quality, you know, that that transferable skills, the thing where it's like the person doesn't have, you know, these keywords on their resume and you skip them. Is there a way for humans to intervene to kind of not miss those candidates that that might slip through the cracks with the, you know, not having the right keywords? Yes, yeah, so I think, you know, human intervention should happen as early and as late in the process as possible. So early when we are designing these AI systems or protocols, because they are still human-made. And that's where it's really important to have a diverse team of experts that understands the risks of training the AI with contaminated data. Most typically, Kate, you know, if you are asking algorithms to predict who gets promoted in a company, it's quite likely that it will learn from corrupted data, data that has basically been based on ratings of who succeeds in a company. And success, unfortunately, as we all know, is dependent on a lot of factors other than people's value-added or performance. So very early on, ethical AI requires expert and ethical humans that train the algorithms. And of course, we should not just use ATS, applicant tracking systems. We should also evaluate how to use natural language processing in video interviews. We should also use science-based assessments that have machine learning scoring engines to make it faster, more accurate, etc. Now, very late in the process, and this becomes a very interesting kind of uh, issue, it's understandable that if you have open-minded, well-trained, and independent humans that actually can add the human touch to evaluating whether the person show social skills in a certain environment, how they think, how they relate, etc., Things like assessing their culture fit or culture add, if you want them to actually expand or evolve the culture because they're bringing something different, that holistic kind of aspect of profiling or assessing people might still be best done by humans. But interestingly, that's also where, again, you open the door for potential biases, right? So ultimately, if uh, I say that this candidate has a certain je ne sais quoi and I feel that they will fit right in, and I feel that they are, they're clicking with me and we others, etc. that might simultaneously increase that candidate's success chances, but it might also be because of some prejudices or invisible biases that still exist in the culture. You could think about the reverse, that from an extreme diversity and inclusion standpoint, we should actually be forcing managers to hire people they hate and they really dislike and they don't get along with, who think completely the opposite of them in all issues, politics, religion, you know, economics, social matters, etc. But of course, we're humans and we need to get along with others. And, you know, let's be realistic as to how progress can happen, again, incrementally rather than going from one extreme to the other. By the way, That will be a first world problem, right? Because today, most managers get away with murder. They hire people on their own images. They say, oh, this person is great without explaining why. And ultimately, they 
you know, are kind of perpetuating this mini me model where the people they put up for promotion and internal high potential programs are really a manifestation of their own subliminal narcissism. Because if you say this person is great because they're just like me, then we should be suspicious. Yes, 100%. And that's something that we've covered a lot on the show and, and a lot on Fast Company is that idea of culture fit is really just hiring people who look like you, who think like you, and then you end up, you know, exactly with these homogenous cultures that aren't as innovative, that aren't as creative, all of that. But that's that's a really great point of you need that human intervention early and late, you know, and I think that's something that people forget, right, is these are things that are designed by humans. So they're only as good as the humans who are designing them. Exactly. And I think, again, you know, people obviously in a team will respond more to leaders who are a little bit like them. You know, here's the other side of the coin. They will find somebody inspiring and empathize with them. And I'm talking about their boss. If they can connect, if they can relate to their story, and if they can see them as, you know, authentic while sharing some qualities with them, right? Mm. But again, that isn't going to make organizations, let alone society, more open-minded. That is going to kind of actually do, well, very much what algorithms do in general, which is basically disconnect us from the other and ensure that we are in this kind of uh, analog or digital cocoon whereby we find others more open-minded because they agree with us as opposed to because they are different from us. And, you know, same happens, of course, if you want to consume news or read articles, etc. So I think organizations should try to strive for a balance and understand that a little bit of conflict is great for innovation, great for creativity, that if three people in the team think exactly like each other, two of them are irrelevant. But of course, also ensure that people do have something in common, that they connect to the mission, to the values, and that they're there because they want to be there and they care about each other, which is going to be easier if they empathize with each other. Yeah, you have to be able to get along. But yeah, I love that. If if two, if two three people think the same, two of them are irrelevant. That's, exactly. that's so true. You know, so on the flip side of the hiring, you know, there's been quite a lot of debate and we've run a few articles on the topic of job seekers using things like chat GPT to write their resumes and cover letters. What are your thoughts on kind of the pros and cons of, of job seekers doing that? Look, I think it's not like cover letters are that revealing and that important. You know, I think most employers also understand that minimizing this is useful. I still remember when I was applying to grad school and I had to draft, you know, extensive essay-like letters to explain why, you know, my my goals and my research kind of objectives fit in with all these different universities. And if you find that you're doing the same over and over again, then why not use a tool to standardize that. Now, at the same time, there should be a certain degree of education that prepares job seekers for understanding that recruiters or hiring managers will be suspicious if the letters look all the same and that injecting the human touch into it and personalizing it is actually quite beneficial if it's done properly. So I think much like in your field, right, I think journalists are divided in at least two camps. Those who say, oh, I'm never going to use this tool because it can never write as well as I do. And the other ones, which I think are smarter and more curious and you know more creative, were saying, I can absolutely use this for a first draft and then modify and it will save me time. And so again, you know, I think it doesn't eliminate for the process. I think, in fact, if I'm a hiring manager, and I see that somebody has ingeniously used 
ChatGPT to create a better cover letter, I mean, that speaks highly of the candidate. And if that is enabling them to apply to 50 jobs in the scope of one week as opposed to just five, well, great, good for them. They're smart, they're driven, and they're working smart rather than hard, you know. Of course, every company wants to feel that candidates really want to work for them and nowhere else. But the reality is that just like companies consider different candidates, candidates should consider different companies, especially if there is a cooling off or a downturn, etc. So I think, and I feel the same way, by the way, about students or pupils in school. Instead of banning ChatGPT, we should tell them, absolutely use it and show me how you can improve the final product or output because you produced it faster or you produced something that was better. And by the way, if in the process you learn about the limitations of this tool and you learn about things that you can do and the tool cannot, that's an even bigger bonus, right? Because you will have upskilled or reskilled yourself or at least increase your knowledge or your expertise of how you can use the tool most effectively. Yeah, I and mean, I'm glad you brought up, you know, I was going to ask you about that since I since you teach, is how you feel about it in the classroom. But that's exactly right, is using it as a tool, you know, same thing that you said about about in the hiring processes, you need the human intervention if you use it to to write the basic outline. I think, where, you know, like you said, where you go wrong is if then you send that in. It's like that's sending your first draft in. You know, you need to, to add your personality, add a touch, use it to help you draft, but not use it as your final project. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, I'm going to tell you something that uh, I'm sure you know and everybody knows, but I mean, for the past 20 years, you know, most of my students have been able to access what I say and what I write online. They can watch my TED Talks, they can read my books, they can read my articles, they can read reviews of them, etc. So I have to think, why would they pay all this money to come and sit with me or at least watch me from wherever they are if it's Zoom and listen to me if they could actually have access to all of this information before? What's the point? So this pushes me to add something that is an outer. So I have to provide something that is original something that is novel, and actually make the interaction that I have with them valuable and stand out from what they could consume in a linear model. Unfortunately, most universities have not yet evolved from you know, the model that we've had for 200 years, which is somebody stands up in front of a class, tells them stuff that they then memorize and repeat. And you know, actually, none of that requires for people to either come to a classroom to not interact with the teacher that much and pay a lot of money for something that, you know, they could probably do in their spare time by digesting the resources that exist and that are freely available. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you do hear of like, well, I can just go to the University of YouTube instead of, you know, having going to an actual class. And yeah, you do have to, with all of these things, you have to add something, you have to have value add. So thinking of our of jobs and and one of the biggest business stories this year is obviously all of the layoffs that are happening at many tech companies and a lot of people have fears around you know now in this environment the AI is going to replace their jobs and we've seen publications like BuzzFeed saying that they're going to use AI to write their quizzes what kinds of jobs are threatened by AI and what kinds of jobs are relatively safe So first you know on the big tech kind of um sort of um, firing, I do think that's still somewhat of an anomaly. And that's because, you know, these companies have grown a lot and were in exuberant mood during the immediate post-pandemic period. And then they probably overexpanded. And, you know, now there is like a natural correction. By the way, pretty much all of these 
software engineer or IT techies that are losing those jobs are still in extremely high demand. They have skills that are really sought after. They will have no difficulties finding other work and other employers. And the talent kind of uh, labor markets are still very, very tight. And there's more demand than supply for these skills. Now, in general, the pattern or the trend that we have been seeing for the past 20 or 25 years is that within more and more jobs, there are more and more tasks that technology is doing and that the dominant technology of our times is obviously AI, but that the full jobs that actually go or the jobs that are fully automated or replaced by AI are actually not that many. And they probably peaked, I would say, 10 or 15 years ago. Now, with things like ChatGPT, we are seeing an incursion into intellectual or knowledge jobs that might be a threat. And I think not just BuzzFeed quizzes, but I think also in Germany, the Springer kind of um, media company said they will reduce the number of journalists they have writing articles because ChatGPT can do it. I'm still skeptical about the degree or volume to which knowledge economy jobs will disappear. But again, even if this happens, at any point in any other previous industrial or technological revolution, what has happened is that more new jobs are created than the ones that disappear. And, you know, if we think about the typical example in the early days of the digital revolution, the number of brick and mortar jobs or like stores has reduced, was reduced because people bought more stuff online. With that, there are fewer store managers, in-person store managers, just like there's fewer supermarket or grocery store cashiers when you have automated checkout things. But then that increases the number of new jobs for cybersecurity analysts and, you know, digital marketeers and, you know, digital transformation strategies, etc. The problem is that you can't automatically go from being a store manager to being a cybersecurity analyst. It requires a lot of reskilling and upskilling. And sometimes we're not very good at predicting what those future jobs will be. But I think at the same time, you can be sure that if you bet on things like curiosity, drive, learning ability, and people skills, and you harness these soft skills, you're always going to have a good shot at reinventing your potential and working out what to do next. But you have to be open-minded and understand that expertise is now has a shorter expiry date than it used to before, and that you have to constantly be working on developing your expertise so that you add some value over what people can find out if they go to Google, Wikipedia, or ChatGPT. Yeah, and I want to get into those soft skills because that's, you know, a, a thing that you talk about in, in your book a lot. But something, you know, that you just mentioned is something that we have covered, that the jobs that go away, the jobs that replace them are more highly skilled. And the upside of that, too, is also usually pay better and are actually better positions than the ones that they replace. And that's the point of technology, right? It's supposed to make our lives better. So there's the optimistic way to look at it. That's the optimistic way. And, you know, on pay, of course, we should also acknowledge that if you factor in inflation and cost of living, there have not been comparable uh, adjustments of pay and salary, even for knowledge workers, you know, if you're outside of the top 5% or so. But yes, I think there's certainly the opportunity that we can spend our time, including our working hours on stuff that actually uh, requires creativity, requires ingenuity, requires inventiveness. And, you know, I think ultimately 
just like any other technology has helped us become not just more productive, but also more creative. It's up to us to understand how we can use these tools to improve not just how we work, but how we experience work as well. Well, yeah, let's talk about that because the subtitle of your book includes the phrase, the quest to reclaim what makes us unique. So, and, and you've, you've talked about this a little bit, but like, what are some of the things that humans can do that are uniquely human that cannot be replaced by AI? Like, for example, we covered a study recently that says the most in-demand in, in job skill is management, which is a, obviously a uniquely human skill. What are kind of those uh, soft skills, as, as they're called, that humans should focus on? So the first one that I highlight in iHuman in the book is actually self-awareness, uh, which is hugely underrated. And it's interesting if you ask Chat GPT whether it is self-aware, which perhaps only a psychologist like myself would do, I understand. This would, is would probably, think to ask, <laughs> exactly. yeah. <laughs> its answer is uh, actually, no, I'm not self-aware. I'm just a large language model, which actually reflects self-awareness, right? Because it's aware of its lack of self-awareness, whereas most people will tell you, yes, I am, even when they're not. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, most people would think they're very, yeah, they have, you know, you've covered this too, right? Have a conflated sense of themselves and, 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 and a misalignment of their actual like knowledge about themselves. Exactly. And even before the recent chat GPT explosion, there was this Discussion just before this, I think, that launched uh, with Google about a year ago on sentient AI and whether AI had consciousness, and there was all this debate. And I think, you know, in characteristic human fashion, we spent a lot of time being territorial and accusational and saying, no, 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 AI is not sentient or it's not conscious like us, it's not self-aware. But in that process, we don't realize that we are not displaying much self-awareness ourselves either. If we go on and on and on with our days, like Groundhog Days, or acting like automata and clicking here and there and reacting to these digital nudges and not thinking about who we are and how we impact others, and we don't realize that potentially we're turning into a less creative and more boring, predictable version of ourselves, you know, much of what I try to do in the first part of the book is to make people more aware of this so that if they don't like it, they can change it and we can actually improve. So that's the first one. Then I think you touched on this when you alluded to our previous discussion on why managers are so important. I think it's really the assumption that in an age where most logical and complex informational problems will be solved by machines, including AI, whether it's ChatGPT or BART or, you know, Galactica, whatever product comes up and there's going to be more and more and more better, 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 what's going to be left for us to do is to deal with people issues, is to deal with humans, is to provide people with validation. Humans will always crave human affection, human understanding. And even though, again, ChatGPT has given impressive signs of faking empathy, because if you upset it or you say your answer was rubbish, it said, oh, I'm sorry that you didn't like it, but it doesn't really feel sorry in the way a human can. So what's going to be with us for a while is deficits around emotional connectedness and emotional intelligence. So ironically, even though we're going to be in a very geeky age where data and machines are going to play an even more important part of our lives and jobs, that actually means that the value that humans will add and our USP or differentiating angle will be 
to develop and cultivate our emotional intelligence, our social skills and our ability to feel what others feel and connect with them on a humane degree. Because we can be sure that even if ChatGP4 and 5 and 6 and 7 are much, much better, it will still not give a damn in the way that humans can. But actually, as we optimize our lives for efficiency and pace and productivity, it's very easy to become almost machine-like. And this is the paradox of the AI age, that as machines got better and AI got better at acquiring human-like features, a lot of us seem to have turned into robots in the process because we forget how important that humane touch is. Yes, and that's something that you covered recently for us. You did an article that was excerpted from your book that was uh, we titled How AI is Making Us More Boring and Less Creative. And, and you wrote that it's worsening kind of our bad tendencies, making us more distractive and selfish and biased and narcissistic and impatient. Can you explain a little bit more about that and like how, how we're using these tools in the wrong way and how we can use them in the right way? and still rely on those skills that make us uniquely human that are, you know, because you're right, you need that human interaction. Yeah. And I think, you know, first of all, if you look closely and deeply under these seemingly negative and bleak paragraphs, there is a little bit of optimism because my intent is that if we accept how monotonous and repetitive and predictable our behavior has become, due to these algorithms and this influence of AI, and you don't like it, actually will have an incentive to rediscover all these qualities. But yeah, in essence, Kate, one of the things that AI does very well is to predict human behavior. But it can only do that really well if human behavior itself is more predictable. Let me give you a very simple example. And let's say that your Netflix viewing preferences are very consistent. You only watch movies by one actor in one genre, you know, the same time, etc. Well, algorithms will have no difficulty whatsoever recommending you films that match your preferences. And then you can apply the same logic to where you eat, where you travel, who you relate to, what news you... So in essence, the more predictable you are, the more AI loves you because it can recommend you stuff better and it can sort of understand you better. And, you know, humans have a tendency to think that they're less predictable than they are. We all think that we are very eclectic. You know, if you ask people at a dinner party, hey, what kind of music do you listen to? People say, oh, you know, all sorts of things, a little bit of this and that and jazz and hip hop. But if you look at their playlists, you'll see that there are very consistent patterns. And so what has happened with the AI age is that algorithms and their businesses and their business models, which rely on basically making more accurate predictions, have become quite good at nudging us in the direction of less variety, not more variety. So let's say that you are a little bit conservative in your political attitudes when Twitter or other social media outlets uh, are feeding you news that match your interests, you become a more exaggerated version of yourself and you become more conservative, not less. And of course, you know, from an open-mindedness perspective, we would expect that algorithms, whether it's Spotify, Netflix, Amazon, etc., should give us things that we don't like and should expose us to content and products that we actually dislike to make us more open-minded. But then we would just leave and go somewhere else. So, you know, the explanation is clear. The more predictable we are, the more money AI makes by showing us stuff that turns us into an exaggerated and, you know, more boring version of ourselves. 
So the ask is to actually infuse a little bit of variety into our own preferences, lives, and interests, and actually seek experiences that run counter these models, these predictive models that AI has on us. So, you know, a future in which we'll maybe take pride or joy from fooling AI into making predictions that we don't like might actually inject a little bit of creativity into an otherwise very predictable and boring life. I think, you know, just like with your friends, if a friend can predict everything you like and what you want to do and your music, what's the point of being somebody different? And I think what it means to be human and to really expand the breadth and depth of our experiences, a good way to think about that is to actually become a less exaggerated version of ourselves and amplify or enrich our interests, our experience, and our personality. So in a way, the less AI can predict you, the more interesting and fun and creative you are. And so I think you probably answered it. That was my last question is, you know, how can we use AI as a tool to make our lives better and enhance our work and enhance our lives rather than be afraid of it and or use it to completely replace things? Fundamentally, it's a great diagnostic tool that can help us understand things, dynamics, processes, forces that would be invisible to the human eye. Let's say you want to understand whether there are biases in a society, in a country that explain, or in a culture that explain inequality. So, you know, being more data-driven in our understanding of the world is one. And the other one is really enhance our self-awareness. I mean, even simple things like AI embedded in wearables that help you understand how you sleep, how you exercise, how healthy you are, and connect some of your activity levels to how you feel and your psychological kind of mood states, etc. None of these things can happen unless you have data or insights that are based on rigorous data. So the ability to pay attention to that and interpret it in the right way to understand ourselves better and opt for better behaviors and become a better version of ourselves can happen or be enabled by AI. But it's not AI that will do it. It still requires human motivation and human willingness to get better and human willpower and fundamentally the ability to change our behaviors in a way that is agentic and that keeps us in the driving seat and not these algorithms and AI. Yeah. I think if anybody takes away one thing from this conversation, it's that, right? It's that humans should stay in, in the driver's seat and not give the power over to the, the tools. Exactly. And, you know, tool is the right way. Since the dawn of human civilization and our evolutionary ancestors, we relied on our inventiveness and ingenuities to create tools that made life better. And as much as AI seems daunting and scary, mostly because of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger films that are still in the collective kind of uh, unconscious and all these kind of uh, sci-fi dystopian films that um, we still reference. But AI is very, very far from that. AI is humble computer code designed to identify patterns in data that can help us understand the world and ourselves. And to the degree that this could also make us less biased and more open-minded and more rational, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for us to improve society in the way that most of us actually want. And having the humility and the 
self-criticism to accept that this won't happen unless we can rely on some tool that helps us do this is a necessary step to actually accomplishing these goals. Yes, for sure. Tomas, thank you so much for being here. It's always a fascinating conversation with you. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Kate. that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Nicholas Torres.